Well, good morning. I'm Steve Coleman, member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. And I was wondering, have you ever gotten so wrapped up emotionally in one part of your life that it sort of spills over and affects another part of your life in ways that it shouldn't have? There was a study done and published the, uh, it, was, it was discussed in Atlantic Magazine, an article last year by Emily DeRee. The study was done that showed that judges in the Louisiana juvenile court system that had graduated, bachelor's degree or higher, and they had been disappointed after an unexpected loss by the LSU football team, they ended up giving out longer sentences to convicted children that next Monday through Friday, by an average of a couple of months, but still an effect done by a couple of uh, economic professors. What they did was they failed to keep the right perspective on what was truly important. If you can tolerate puns, you might say they didn't keep their eye on the ball. Say that Isaac seems to have a similar difficulty with the right perspective when it comes to Esau and Jacob. We're continuing a series in Genesis on the lives of the patriarchs. In in the chapter we're dealing with today, we have perhaps the best known story from Jacob's life. The... uh, His getting the blessing. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Genesis 27. What's the context of this story? A couple of weeks ago, we started on Jacob's story in Genesis 25, and we read there that Isaac's wife, Rebekah, was having trouble conceiving. Isaac prayed, and she became pregnant. She was having twins. And she felt some weird things going on in her body. There was jostling that was sort of unprecedented. So she went to the Lord about her odd pregnancy. And the Lord had told her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within yourself will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. It's important to remember that. It stands as sort of one end of a set of stories for Jacob that that we'll see concluded next week when Julie talks about Jacob's travels to um, a different part of the Middle East uh, to visit Laban's family and to, to get a wife there. And God appears to Jacob in a dream, Jacob's ladder, we know that as. And, and God blesses Jacob and gives him... Uh, as she'll say next week, it's a heads up for her, that he's given the same blessing that has been given to Abraham, that was passed down to Isaac, and here it's repeated again to Jacob. Um, But what this verse is, is the beginning of Jacob's story. We had last week the selling of Esau's birthright. And... uh, and we've got the stolen blessing today, and then we'll see the, the other bookend of God's revelation to this couple or, or to this family by God coming to Jacob and reaffirming the, the, um, the covenant. Now, we read in a couple of weeks ago when the birthright was sold that as the boys grew, we read that Isaac, who enjoyed eating wild game that Esau hunted, He loved Esau, 
but Rebecca loved Jacob. That's what the scriptures say. And Julie last week covered chapter 26, which talks about Isaac's uh, travels and adventures with the Philistines. So chapter 27 here opens with Isaac as an old man. We know he died at age 80. Likely he was in his hundreds, but no older than about 150 probably because we know he lives the 21 years Jacob is gone as well as uh, a good while after that. So a reasonable guess is no older than 150. Well, let's start going through this section. When Isaac was old and his eyes were weak so that he could no longer see, he called for Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son. Here am I, he answered. Isaac said, I'm now an old man and don't know the day of my death. He goes on to tell Esau, sends him out to hunt some game, prepare for Isaac to eat. Then Isaac plans to give him the blessing. And off Esau goes. Well, you know, the first thing we need to do is stop for a minute and talk about the blessing. You see, to really understand it, we've got to place ourselves into the ancient world. Uh, I'm not, I was thinking, I couldn't think of really a good equivalent in our society. But back, because back then, words carried more weight. They were just, they were not just hung out there for listeners to decide whether or not to pay attention to them, like we do. We say, ah, he's just talking. They carried something beyond the simple definitions. They had gravitas. It was expected that words would change things. They determined futures. That's why names are always uh, carefully recorded in many parts of the Old Testament, that they were named this, which means this. Uh, it It was meant to have an impact. Also, there was none of the individualism that particularly, per, uh, particularly characterizes our society. You know, you could hear of a high school graduate who decided to move to Santa Fe, start his life there, and cut off all ties with his family. And we'd pass it off as a parent-child relationship gone wrong. Nothing doing in the ancient world. As far as the experts can tell, with the evidence they have, parents and children had a deep stake in each other's destinies. Your identity was intergenerational. Every generation was linked to the ones before and the ones after. It was an integral piece and part of life. A third difference. Symbolic actions were viewed as having genuine and lasting power. So laying your hands on somebody and blessing them uh, was not an empty gesture signifying nothing. It was a decisive event in which something had been done permanently and irrevocably. You know, there's all kinds of traditions. We know a little bit about gestures. Uh, and, and there are, in this world today, lots of ways in which gestures are very important. When we say hello and goodbye, often we give a handshake. The Belgians prefer the kiss, an air kiss to be more precise. While strangers will shake hands at first in Belgium, once any kind of relationship's been established, they greet each other with three air kisses. Protocol calls for the kisses to be given first on the right cheek, then on the left cheek, 
and back to the right cheek. Not giving the three kisses or not following the right order when giving them are both considered disrespectful when dealing with Belgians. While it seems strange and awkward to us, it carries significant meaning in Belgium. I'm glad I live here. The blessings in ancient times were not just well-wishing or an expression of parental pride or a prediction of their success. It was a grave, life-altering ceremony tied to the promises of God and the spiritual leadership of the clan. So as we read the narrative that we have in front of us uh, with a correct understanding, we can sense the underlying current of tension. Nobody, but nobody wanted a life without the special words and gesture of the blessing that binds them to the heritage of the past and to an incredible future. And someone is going to get the blessing of Isaac and of God and someone's going to receive a lesser destiny. The whole family knows what's at stake with this. And we as readers watch the events unfold in a very painful way as it seems uh, can only happen in a, a family that's dysfunctional like this. It's really a t- tragedy, this is. And it has four parts. This first part that we've just read, the father prepares to bless the elder son. Second part, mother schemes for the younger son. Third part, the younger son deceives the father, gets the blessing instead. And finally, when the elder son finds out, he's got a mixture of grief and plots murder. So grief with a very heavy dose of anger and hatred. So what's so tragic about the first part? I can see the tragedy in 2, 3, and 4. What about the father preparing to bless the elder son is tragic? Well, I think we see this becomes clear as we look at Rebecca's actions in part two. And I believe the tragedy of Isaac is important. Watch this, beginning in verse five. Now, Rebecca was listening as Isaac spoke to his son Esau. When Esau left for the open country to hunt game and bring it back, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, look, I overheard your father say to your brother Esau, bring me some game and prepare me some tasty food to eat so I may give you my blessing in the presence of the Lord before I die. Now, my son, listen carefully and do what I tell you. She goes on to instruct him to get two young goats. She's going to prepare it like venison uh, or whatever Esau tends to bring back from the hunt in order to fool Isaac. And Jacob is to take the meal in, pretend he's Esau, and get the blessing. Well, Jacob is concerned about being found out. He says, what if a curse comes down on me instead of a blessing if I'm found out? And Rebecca says she will absorb any fallout. Let the curse fall on me, she says. Jacob then does what she asks. Well, does it strike you odd that Rebecca overhears a conversation and her solution is to devise a way to trick Isaac into giving the blessing to a different child? Before you answer that, let's remind ourselves of the position that Rebecca's in. Remember, God told her there are two nations in her womb, and the older will serve the younger. Even before they were born, she got this message. 
So do you think Rebekah told Isaac about that prophecy? The Bible doesn't tell us. It's silent about it. But do you think Rebekah told Isaac? Sounds like interesting news. When things go quiet at the dinner table. Hey, you know what I heard today about our sons, our children being born? Yeah, she had learned the natural results of the birth order would be reversed. The elder would serve the younger. That alone is headline news for that day and age. So in what world do you think she would not share this with Isaac? This pronouncement the Lord had made. Well, let's just suppose she didn't tell him. It slipped her mind. Stay with me now. Having now overheard the conversation with Esau, and she realizes, oh yeah, I never did tell Isaac about that. Wouldn't she just go into the tent and tell Isaac now, instead of going for this elaborate ruse? That makes sense. If Isaac knew, if she really had told him earlier on, why would he try to give the blessing to Esau? Well, maybe it slipped his mind. He's in his hundreds. But again, wouldn't Rebecca just go into the tent and remind him? Well, what if it slipped his mind, but Isaac refused to listen to things that Rebecca said? He was a stubborn old coot. It's possible, but it doesn't really seem to fit either because at the beginning of the next chapter that Julie's going to talk about next week, he is, uh, Isaac's receptive to Rebekah's suggestion that Jacob be sent away to get a wife from Laban's family rather than stay here and perhaps marry one of the Canaanites as Esau had done. He listened to her, said, yeah, makes sense sends Jacob off. So why would he listen to her about that and have her be so certain she, he wouldn't listen about this issue that she would rather go through this big ruse, bringing uh, uncertainty about its success, the willingness to accept a curse for trying to deceive Isaac? Okay, well, if she did tell him, what would cause her to take the extraordinary steps to set up this elaborate deception in order to get Jacob the blessing. Well, either it slipped Isaac's mind, and she also knew he would not listen to her on the subject of Jacob getting the blessing, or it did not slip his mind, and she knew he would not listen to her on the subject of Jacob getting the blessing. Those are the two alternatives I'm left with. The truth seems to be Isaac wanted Esau to get the blessing in spite of. We read that um, Isaac liked the meat Esau hunted, and he loved Esau. We read that Rebekah loved Jacob. The Bible doesn't make a comment on parenting styles here of having a favorite child, but you have to think that this favoritism affected family relationships and may have contributed to not only the awkwardness of what happens in this chapter, but to Isaac's error. Certainly Isaac, if he was not open to talk about his determination to bless Esau, his priorities were not in the right order. Whatever the reason, Rebecca acted as though her only recourse was this tenuous plan. 
So the tragedy of Isaac was that he didn't cherish God's words to Rebekah that, that Jacob was the one to get the blessing. Instead, other things affected his judgment. The account of this family and the stolen blessing goes on. Jacob follows his mother's plan, lies to Jacob, not just with a costume and a meal, but twice lying to direct questions about who he was. And Isaac blessed him. You can note in this old painting, I never can remember artist names or years these things were painted, but it's a great painting here of this event. Uh, you note that Rebecca's in the tent, which didn't really happen, but symbolically you see her there with her hands on the back of Jacob as if she's pushing him on into this. We see a Jacob there, uh, close to Isaac. He looks really, really young. Now, if you remember chapter 25, you probably don't. I had to look it up <laughs> myself, and I spoke on it. But uh, Esau was 40 no, Esau was 60 when he got married at 40. He was 60 when Rebekah did not have a child, and he prayed for a child, which then the children were delivered when he was 61. So if that child, I'll give him 20 years of age, Isaac would be 81. He ends up dying at 180. Isaac now calls Esau because he says, I'm at this point where I'm not sure when I'm going to die and I want to make sure the blessing gets handed down. So Jacob was older than this. Like I say, Isaac was probably, we know he lives at least 20 plus years more. So, uh, but he's, he's, he's got to be uh, older than this. And then you notice the goat skin that, Rachel puts on Jacob, uh, it's just here on the one arm, and Isaac's feeling that because Esau was a hairy guy, really hairy, absolutely, uh, and, uh, or maybe it was a balding goat, but Esau did, was called hairy, we read that in chapter 25, so, um. it's a great irony though, isn't it, that the blessing was actually taken by deception, going to get this good thing, pass this good thing down. And Rachel, whether it's in response strictly to God's um, pronouncement or whether Rebecca loving Jacob played into this, um, but in any event, uh, her desire was to see Jacob get this. And, and in order to do that, resorts to a scheme on her part, and lies on Jacob's part. The text says that no sooner had Jacob left the tent when Esau returned and, his, and came in and said, here's the stuff, Dad. And his father, Isaac, asked him, who are you? I'm your son, he answered, your firstborn, Esau. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him. And then this is the uh, NIV, and it says, and indeed he will be blessed. Your translations probably say a similar thing, sort of a real abrupt shift there, and a statement, yes, he's the one that's going to be blessed. 
The blessing was irrevocable. Isaac recognized that. Esau heard his father's words. He burst out with a loud and bitter cry and goes on and entreats his father. Surely there's a blessing left for me. And we'll talk about that in just a second. We can clearly understand the tragedy here. Esau, expecting to get the blessing, returns to find it taken. Esau pleads to Isaac, Do you only have one? Bless me too. He gets one, but it has little to offer. Look at the comparison. Here's Jacob's blessing. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundance of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. What Isaac came up with for Esau sort of fits with that last statement. Yes, he will be blessed indeed. This is Esau's blessing in quotes. Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. Exact opposite of Jacob's. You will live by the sword. So instead of nations serving you and people's bowing down, you're going to have to live a life in conflict to survive, to get anywhere. And you will serve your brother. Again, the, the opposite of, of uh, Jacob's and fits right in with God's prophecy. And then finally, when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. So instead of being in a position where people that bless you will be blessed and people that curse you will be cursed, so that's a natural decrease to those, your enemies, and an increase for those that are your friends. Instead, Esau's left, hey, if, if when you grow restless, you're going to get restless because you're not going to be in that comfortable position of Jacob and his descendants, but you will throw off his yoke, Jacob's yoke, from off your neck. Not the kind of thing you want your wife to crochet or needlepoint or whatever and put over your bed. No, it's a different kind of thing entirely. Well, two weeks ago, I talked about two questions. Of, of all the things that happened, why was this story recorded? And what about this story connects it with the overarching story? We know back in chapter 25, the, the, the central idea of that, with the selling of the birthright, much shorter story, less nuance to it, but it was that God determines plans and people make choices. What's not spoken in that central idea is God's plans happen, whatever people do. That's the, sort of the corollary. And that's certainly true in this chapter. We can easily see it. But you know, one of the nuances in our story today is that Isaac, though he was the head of the clan, he was the patriarch of God. He himself had received the blessings and the promises of God. That it was this guy who did not keep his eye on the ball, at least in these later years. God's plan was crowded out by other interests. Or 
he didn't take appropriate counsel with Rebecca, or both. Keeping a focus on God and his plan is more difficult sometimes than it seems. Let me close with stories of my own. When I was a teenager, uh, we went to a small little assembly, little church in D.C., in southeast D.C. at the time. And um, there was a small place, a nice little old lady, and I was, like I say, a teenager, and she came to me and said, you know, I've locked myself out of my house coming here. She said, you know, it's on, I forget, second or third story in this sort of rowish house. And she said, can, is it, can you climb up and get into the window and get my keys and, you know, come out? And, you know, I, I'm not a huge fan of heights, but it was doable, probably. But, you know, I said, ah, no, nah, I don't really think I can do it. And uh, so that was fine. Life went on for about three more minutes. And then two of the elders came over with her in tow and said, this poor lady's locked herself out of her house. Can you go climb up and go in the window and go get it? And so with a heart overflowing with resentment, <laughs> I figured out a way to climb this silly house uh, and, and get in the second floor and get the woman's keys. Well, that story really sets up this one. Years ago, we had an interesting guy here named Stuart McBride, who passed on a number of years ago. As you know, sat near the soundboard, and he always had a comment to pass on to the speaker. (laughs) One particular Sunday, I was really looking forward to the afternoon. I honestly can't remember why. Was it football? Was it just taking a nap? I had something which was like, ah, me time. This is going to feel really good. Uh, and he came to me and said uh, his car, he had to abandon his car because it didn't work, stop working in some uh, shopping center and got a ride back to his house. But he wanted to go after church, go to his car, get AAA to come and tow it to the garage and, and get a ride home. And um, I remember thinking about my me time and remembering this earlier event, and I said, well, Lord, uh, you didn't let me get away with it last time, <laughs> made me do it, I'm, I need to get the message. And I said, sure, Stuart. So we did. We went, burned up two and a half, three hours of the afternoon. Um, But it occurred to me, you know, focusing on God and His plan, He wants to do things in me. He wants to do things in other people that I meet up with, that I have contact with. Uh, it's, It's not always easy to keep your eye on the ball, particularly those small moments when you've got some little cherished thing or... Maybe you're, you're uh, just not feeling as well as other times. And uh, it takes that extra effort. And I've realized, being the age I am, um, and I've had other experiences like this on through my life. This wasn't the only one. All the time, me time gets interrupted. And, uh, but it's, 
it's all about what God's trying to do in the moment. And you don't know when a word or a gesture or something is something that he wants to have happen. We've got to keep our eye on the ball. The more we know the Lord, uh, the, sometimes it seems the easier it is for ourself. That's, that's the enemy, that counterfeit of self. I could have given you probably six reasons why it was good for me to have that meet and probably two of them were spiritual but i needed to go and i knew probably two dozen people in this room or more would do it in a heartbeat uh, but i needed to do it and i did so take a lesson from isaac the guy who didn't keep his eye on the ball and uh let's take a look pray at the beginning of the day this monday Tuesday and Wednesday, Lord, help me see the people you want me to see or to do the things I need to do. You know, uh, nudge me so that I know it's me in the way and need to move. Uh, Let's pray now. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for these terrific stories of the way you work. We can see very clearly your complete sovereignty we can also see very clearly that um, we, just like these characters, are fallible human beings. Amen.